Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm still Tane Kell. Loyal listeners know that we always ask for topic suggestions for future episodes in every episode we record. Yeah, we listen closely to your requests and ideas, and we really appreciate them a great deal. So today's episode, Tane, comes from the mind of a loyal listener. Shout out to Betty Banks for the idea for today's episode. That's right. Shout out to Betty Banks for the great idea and for cutting down on our workload. <laughs> Today, we are going to talk about one of my favorite uh, rules in all of ruledom, uh, the five-year rule. You know, I asked Miss Banks, Tane, for the backstory on why she thought it would be a good idea for us to record an episode on the five-year rule, and to date, I, I haven't heard back. You know, maybe she just likes five-year rules. I don't know. But uh, the five-year rule is frequently an administrative thing that clerks and others use to clean up the docket. And it would be interesting to hear how that might have impacted Ms. Uh, Banks in the past. You know, to gro- quote the great philosopher Arsenio Hall, things that make you go, hmm. He had the longest fingers I've ever he seen did. anybody in yeah, my life. Yeah, he should have been a pianist. I articulated that very You carefully. did. You did a good job. Anyway, so let's get to today's episode on the five-year rule. You know, Tane, the five-year rule is actually... Rules. It, I guess it shows up twice in the code. Yeah, they liked it so much. So they l- thought it was so nice, they did it twice, I guess. <laughs> OCGA 9-2-60 or OCGA 9-11-41E. Every time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. Are not one yeah, of those provisions of the Civil Practice Act team that just kind of roll off the tongue of lawyers or judges, or even clerks for that matter. That's right. But it is a provision, as you said earlier. It's a provision we all know pretty well. We just all call it by one rule, by one name, I guess, the five-year rule. Yeah. Now, you might ask yourself why we felt the need for an episode on what's usually an administrative task for clerks and courts. Uh, you know, frankly, when we received this idea for an episode topic. Uh, you know, I thought we might have difficulty making this topic into an episode. I mean, there is a five-year rule that operates as an automatic dismissal. Roll the credits. We're done. But, you know, in, in getting into this, we realize there's really a little bit more to this topic than, than initially meets the eye. So while these statutes may have been viewed as an administrative document management tool or statutes, there are some details here, Tane, that deserve our consideration because the ramifications of a dismissal under the five-year rule can be pretty dramatic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as we're going to discuss, a dismissal under the five-year rule is is automatic. I mean, even without a motion by a party or really any action by the court, and once you get there, basically it can't be waived. That's right. So any such a dismissal can significantly impact litigation and how lawyers might try to approach certain hearings or certain motions. So, Tane, tell us about the statutes and what actually appears in the statutes. Yeah, it's funny. These uh, these statutes are basically identical twins. Um, why they appear in the code twice, only the legislature can know for sure. But uh, we believe in the separation of powers, so I'm sure they had a good reason for that. Um, essentially, they have the same language. Uh, 9260 and 91141E say essentially this. 
9141E simply makes all of the same points of the separate statute in a single sentence. OCGA Section 9260B and 91141E are the statutory embodiment of what we call the five-year rule. And the statutory language is, is basically this. Um, if we had drafted 9260, we would have changed the order of the paragraphs but then again, nobody asked us. Nobody right? ever asked us, Tang. Nobody ever calls and says, "What do y'all think?" So they should. There is it. But let's. I know. I know we have we have thoughts about reading statutes, Wade. But I think in this case, it's only appropriate that we read a little statutory language, just you know, for for background, if nothing. Reading else. law during a podcast is not awesome. Right. So let's be not awesome for a minute, Wade, and I'll I'll give you the privilege of. Uh, of reading this in whatever awesome language you can read it in. I can't do the whole uh, Elmo thing, so I'm not even really going to try. I don't <laughs> have an English still accent. still talking to me about that. That was like episode 42, and we're at like 126, <laughs> and people are still going, that Elmo thing was weird. Man. <laughs> so for the purposes of this code section, this is 9-2-60. Yeah. An order of continuance will be deemed an order, and the word proceedings shall be held to include, but shall not be limited to, an appeal from award of a special master in a condemnation proceeding or any sort of assessors. So let's let's take that phrase out. A, an order of continuance is an order in this section. Section mm -hmm. B, any action or other proceeding filed in any of the courts of this state in which no written order, and I'm going to sort of verbally underline written order, is taken for a period of five years, shall automatically stand dismissed with cost to be taxed against the party plaintiff. Finally, in section C, when an action is dismissed under this code section, if the plaintiff recommences the action within six months following the dismissal, then the renewed action shall, st shall stand upon the same footing as to limitation with the original action. Now, Tane, that, that's very profound. 9-11-41E basically is more our style, isn't it? Yeah, it's a little more pithy, a little more to the point. It kind of says uh, all that stuff in one sentence. Yeah, it really does. So kudos to whoever wrote 9-11-41E. Uh, <laughs> so you may ask yourself out there in podcast land, why there are two statutory provisions that contain virtually the same language? And Tane, you want to answer it for them? We simply do not know. Yeah. I mean, it just... That's simple. It's back to Arsenio Hall, things that make you go, hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, Tane, we talk about in prior episodes, we talk about a couple of rules of statutory interpretation. There's a zillion of them. We've just touched on a few. But we discussed the, the, the principle that applies here that bears repeating in which a lot of the appellate cases have, have cited with great zeal. So statutes, Tane, that are in derogation of common law, what, how, do they, how, how must they be construed, Tane? Wade, those are strictly construed. I bet you did good in like statutory interpretation class, didn't you? Yep. So if you look at the episode notes, Tane, that they can find where? Uh, at goodjudgepod.com, Wade. We have some statutory language and some appellate language that have talked about and sort of underscored that this is in derogation of common law, must be strictly construed. But but what that's going to mean here in a minute, Tane, is when we read all that language from 9260, the same thing appears in 91141E, automatic is a really big word here. 
it's an automatic dismissal. And, and the cases say, look, it's in derogation of common law, so you have to strictly construe it. Right. But, but the word automatic is, is, you know, kind of strange, in fact. I mean, very few things in the law happen automatically with no order from the court or anything like that. And so some litigants have even argued that these five-year rules violate due process and the extreme sanctions for inactivity in a civil case are unfair. Well, if the the cases that have said that the statute that says it will automatically stand dismissed if no written order is taken for a period of five years do not violate due process. The statute was a reasonable procedural rule that furthers the dual purpose of preventing court records from becoming cluttered with inactive litigation and protecting litigants from dilatory counsel. Moreover, but, statute, the statute afforded litigants the opportunity to litigate their claims and required only a minimal amount of activity to avoid that dismissal and gave litigants the right to renew the action within six months of the dismissal. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a curable automatic, you know, fault on, on everybody's part. And I, I guess, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, Five years is a really long time to let something sit with nothing happening. So, you know, I think the legislature thought, hey, we're kind of giving you, hey, we're giving you a long time. And then B, we're giving you six months to fix it once, once it happens. So, you know, I, I, it seems fair to me. I don't know. But, so, Tane, uh, but we, anyway. we know how to count, but when we right. have these rules Sometimes it can be really important to figure out when, when time limitations start. So what does the law say about when the five-year rule begins to run? Because I think this may catch some people by surprise. Yeah, it, it says time begins to run on the date that the complaint is filed, regardless of when the answer is filed. And that's, that's when calculating time limitations. So if you had a case where you filed it and it took a long time to serve the defendant, you couldn't find them, there was a whole big thing, or you didn't file the service paper and it didn't relate back and all of that, when you're talking about the five-year rule, that's a different analysis than when you're talking about statute limitations running. I mean, there's all kinds of, of different rules that have time limitations, and this is different. This is from the right. date of filing the complaint. Right. And, and, and again, that's if... No written order is entered, so we're going to get to that in just a second. So everybody, don't start losing your minds and, again, driving off the road, falling off the Peloton, you know, running off the trail, whatever you're doing. Don't do that. Get Stick with us for a second. But, yeah, I mean, it starts running from the date the complaint is filed. So this these statutes require a written order, Tane, and they're pretty – all these cases, believe it or not, there's quite a few cases on this. These cases are pretty clear on a couple of points. Tell them about mm -hmm. what a written order would entail and what it does not include. Yeah, sure. So, so for example, um, it's insufficient to avoid the automatic dismissal provisions for the judge to verbally grant a continuance of the case. I mean, that's pretty obvious. It clearly says a written order is required. Um, it's pretty common for a judge to do things like conduct a calendar call. And at that calendar call for one or both of the parties to verbally request a continuance, even in the situation where the judge grants that, verbally grants that, those verbal pronouncements do not reset the clock for the five-year rule. And it and, must be an order. A party yeah. filing is not an order signed by the court. 
Tane, read that awesome quote that comes next. Every yeah. time a statue decided, an angel gets his wings. <laughs> so it says, uh, I don't know, that makes me laugh every time. Um, it says, in order to satisfy the statute, an order must be written, signed by the trial judge, and properly entered on the records of the trial court by filing it with the clerk. So it's a multi-part process. I mean, it isn't just somebody wrote something and laid it aside and never did anything with it. It's got to be something that I could go and search for. You know, if I were going to go to the courts, uh, the courthouse, I need to be able to go down to the clerk's office and say, hey, what's the last written order filed in this case signed by the judge and, uh, you know, uh, and filed on the records yeah. of the court? Yeah, filed with the clerk. So even where a party makes continued efforts, and they talked about this one case talked about where the lawyer had written a letter, had made a jury demand, had made a myriad of phone calls, the trial court, they, he had been contacting the trial court attempting to get this case placed on a trial calendar, but none of those actions told that five-year rule. Tane, remember, derogation of common law, strictly construed, these are not written orders signed by the judge entered in the docket. That's right. And and that's really going to be the three-part test for most any order you're looking at. Uh, the court said the question is not whether a party or lawyer has been diligent or dilatory. The, quote, litigation efforts of the parties is irrelevant. A written order by the trial judge must be signed and entered on the court's records to toll the five-year rule. Now, Tane, um, I think there's some strategy here and mm -hmm. probably worthy of some conversation. And we have some summarizing comments and thoughts and ideas in this outline, but right now just realize that if you are if you need a continuance, it might be a really good idea to get a written order on that request. I have seen, for example, Tane, and you may have seen this back when you worked, I mean, I'm sorry, back when you were serving as a judge, and where people would send you a, Judge, we need an order sending us to mediation. We want you to mm -hmm. order us to mediation. You're like, well, you can go to mediation anytime you want to go to mediation. Right. Well, then I started thinking, hmm, this might be a five-year rule thing. You know what I mean? Sure, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, 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 it potentially fits the, the definition that we've just given of what a written order uh, in, in one of these circumstances would entail. You know, it's a written order signed by the judge and filed with the clerk. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's potentially something that would – keep that five-year clock. It would restart that five-year clock. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now, back to our studio audience. Tane, does this order have to be important? Um, an important order or an order denying summary judgment? 
some would argue I never filed any important orders in my career, but um, no, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be quote unquote important. In other words, there aren't degrees of importance. Um, a written, signed, and properly filed order need not advance or resolve the litigation, or grant or deny affirmative relief, or have been obtained by the party seeking to use it to toll the running of the five-year rule in order to qualify as a tolling order. Now, there were older cases, Tane, that have been overruled now that suggested that the written order, if it is to be considered an, an order under the five-year rule, had to be an order entered in response to a party's motion. All of those cases have been overruled. And I think some of our longer into tooth lawyers and judges who listen to us may say, well, it, it has to be in response to a motion. And that is no longer the law, but it was for a long time. That's right. And, and, and the, those cases were specifically overruled. I mean, it wasn't, it yeah. wasn't, it was a, it was an affirmative, you know, thought process right. of the, of the courts to get rid of that, uh, as big, but, and, and you can understand that because then you've got to, You've got to quibble about the degrees of the order and that sort of thing. So, so it makes sense to just say it's a written order uh, signed by the judge, entered on the docket uh, by the clerk. Those older cases, Tame, seem to suggest that rule that orders from a court, like to draw jurors or orders for the parties to enter into a pretrial order or similar, what they called housekeeping orders, would not toll the five-year rule. And all of that law has been overruled. If you want to read it. It's in our outline. You can find it at goodjudgepod.com. Right. And they've made it simpler, really. I mean, under existing law, if the order is in writing, signed by the judge, and filed upon the records of the trial court, the five-year rule is told and, and, and reset, basically. It starts running again as soon as that order is filed. So, Tane, this, this rule, these rules say that it's a dismissal by operation of law. They are mandatory, and they happen automatically, and it is an operation of law. So, Tane, can people waive the five-year rule even by mutual consent? No, no. I mean, again, it's an, it's something that automatically occurs, and it again, it requires this written order signed by the judge and filed on the court. So the parties can do whatever the parties want to do, but until they get the judge to buy in on it and, and embody it in an order and file it with the clerk, it doesn't really have any meaning because this is an administrative uh, mechanism that operates really outside the judge as well. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute, but I mean, it's it's something that happens by operation of law. So, Tane, you talk about strategery. There is some <laughs> strategery right. in this next case. So in this case, both parties kind of didn't acknowledge the five-year rule. They got their case set for trial. They tried the case before a jury. They got a judgment. And... On appeal, they said, "Hey, all of this is a mere nullity because the five-year rule." Those are words you don't ever want to hear. I, what no. you did trying your case was a mere nullity. Yeah, even an agreement by the parties to continue the case again it cannot avoid the implications of the five-year rule absent a judge's buy-in. Now, Tate, right. I don't know how much y'all dealt with this because you had some military bases in and around Cobb County, but we have a huge base here and we deal with this a lot. The Service Members Civil Relief Act. Did y'all deal with yeah, that a lot? A little bit. I mean, you know, there were some things where, for example, they had to affirmatively allege that they had checked the Service Members, you know, Relief Act. And some of that is debt collection stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and other things. And sometimes it would come up in domestic cases mm -hmm. for things. So, yeah, I mean, we dealt with it a little bit, but 
explain, Wade, since you guys deal with it so much, uh, how what this is and how it applies in something like this. So your older heads may think this was the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act. They they changed that to Service Member Civil Relief Act a few years ago. There was an argument that there's an automatic stay that is associated with the Service Member Civil Relief Act, and therefore that told the five-year rule. And all it's of those arguments— it. It could thwart the five-year rule. Nice word. You get a <laughs> the nickel. Those it's, agreement, those arguments, excuse me, have been directly rejected. And I don't tell you, neither one of us want to get too far down in the weeds of the yeah. service members' civil relief act. Just understand that the Georgia courts have said that a stay under that act does not go into effect by operation of law or upon the filing of a motion under the service members' civil relief act. The stay requires a hearing with findings, and therefore it does not act as a stay or a toll to the five-year rule. That's right. It doesn't preempt it just because it might apply in that case. So, Tane, um, we talked about that trial that was had yeah. after the five-year rule. What about a motion to reconsider your dismissal, Judge? Does that toll the rule? No. I, you know, again, it, it, these things, the, the statute's been pretty clear. It, it happens by operation of law. And the things that happen subsequent to that, other than a you know, refiling of the action within the six-month window, are, are a nullity. And so, uh, you know, a motion to recommit, reconsider the automatic dismissal, it just doesn't revive a case that is dismissed under the rule. Um, at the time the five-year rule becomes effective, the underlying case is, the, the court's language, quote, completely lifeless for all purposes, end quote. Some would say, that I am as well now in retirement. But that's not true, Wade. I'm doing this podcast, and that's evidence <laughs> that I am, in fact, not completely lifeless. Um, but the court also said uh, any filing that occurs after that time, after the dismissal of the case by operation of law, is, again, a nullity. So rather than keep reading you quotes about how things are lifeless and nullities and all of that, just understand we've got the the cases, if that were to become relevant in your world, uh, in the outline that you can find at goodjudgepod.com. Now, Tane, no rule would be self-respecting unless there was an exception. Thank goodness, yes. We've got to have exceptions. Um, so, go ahead. We have a section here called exceptions, and really that's a misnomer, Tane. We're not really, they're not exceptions. They are clarifications or other provisions of the law, which, when applied, make the the draconian effect of the five-year rule inapplicable. So, Tane, there is a larger rule beyond the five-year rule that says there is no time limit for a trial court to enter a judgment following the jury's verdict. Of course, that assumes that the trial happened within the five years. Right, right. So if, you, if, you've, if you've met that, um, well, uh, let's just say the trial ends on the last day of the five years. It, it would be you know, ridiculous to say, oh, well, you didn't enter the judgment until the next day. So therefore, you know, everything you did at the trial during the five years was a nullity because we didn't enter the judgment. So the case law says, no, because there's no time in which a judgment has to be entered, then that's not going to um, cause the action to be dismissed if it's already been tried within the time of the five-year rule. And the same is true for a bench trial, Tane. Just whenever you're entering a judgment, but you've you've already had the hearing or had the trial or had the jury trial, the fact that you all that is left to do is enter the order, that is not going to be subject to a five-year rule. Five year rule. Now, you know all these cases were really bad fact patterns, right? Of course. Where the, ver <laughs> where the jury came back and nobody entered a judgment. 
Tane, I don't know how many times I've heard you speak on civil trial practice and you have stressed because lawyers miss it all the time. When the verdict comes back, it is, it's interesting, it's important, but it's not a judgment until a judge signs the judgment that, that reflects the jury's verdict. Yeah, there's no levy <laughs> on, a, on a jury verdict. There's no FIFA. Is there uh, an appeal? I mean, it, your appeal hadn't even started running, right? That's right. And, and, and you know, it's it's like in a, in a criminal case. I mean, you know, if if the jury comes back and you haven't sentenced anybody yet, it 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 isn't finished, you know. And so it's not it's not in a civil case either. Um, so Tane, let's skip over to certain types of cases, very sure, specific yeah. types of cases. Um, all this is on GoodJudgePod.com, and all these different citations with a bunch of endnotes and footnotes that Tane never reads. But they are there. I do. They're at the end. I don't want to spoil the ending by reading them in the middle. So we found a couple of examples of cases that lawyers and judges might really want to pay particular attention to, Tane. Let's talk about this first one with consent agreements in the debt collection agency. You had those, didn't you? Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you're familiar with these types of cases. The plaintiff files a suit on a debt and the parties into enter into a, quote, consent agreement under which the defendant agrees to make certain payments and, upon default, the plaintiff can seek a judgment in the full amount of the debt then outstanding. So under the five-year rule, Tane, once the five years have passed from that consent agreement being filed, or if, assuming the judge signed it, mm -hmm. no other order was entered in the case, guess what stands out, dismissed by operation of law, Tane? Your case. Correct. <laughs> even though it has a, even though it's based on a consent agreement, the whole thing goes out the window. Yep. So Tane, as we've talked about, if your case got dismissed, you can renew it, but we're sort of assuming something brought this to your attention. Yeah, I mean, maybe in your jurisdiction the clerk sends out a notice that the file is closed or something, you know, something happens or maybe one of your buddies calls you and says, "Hey, I noticed your case got dismissed." I don't know, you know, maybe something brings it to your attention within that 6-month period of time. There is an opportunity for renewal. But Tane, that six month again, that clock starts on the day of the date of the dismissal, not the date a dismissal order gets entered. It's 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 not what is the the Disney princess that goes to the ball and the she's in a pumpkin that turned into a chariot and that's Cinderella, way. And Good at 12 o'clock, ding. Wait, come on, Shirley, you, you've got granddaughters. She, come on, she man. She falls back into her old rags. That's yeah. what happened to your case. Yeah, 12 yeah, o'clock hit. That was the beginning of the clock on your renewal opportunity, Tane. I think we have a sounder for that, way. Was that the sounder you were thinking of? That's exactly what happens at midnight on that date. Is, is all of a sudden you hear, you wake up in a cold sweat, and you're like, what was that? Well, it was your case getting dismissed, but you don't know that because you didn't bother to check on that. So anyway, but yes, you're, you're exactly right. So, so, for, the, so for the renewal to relate back, Tane, under the statute of limitations, let's break this rule down a little bit, okay? Yeah, and that's what, that's what I was going to say, Wade. This is really important because you got now you've got a statute of limitations problem in most cases unless you've got a really lengthy statute of limitations. So yeah, let's talk about the first part of that. So we've talked about the fact that the trial court need not even enter an order. It happens by operation of law. So this situation assumes that something has happened to bring this to your attention. Assuming all of that is true and you're within that six-month period, if a party wants to renew the action and avoid summary judgment or a motion to dismiss when they file that renewal because of the statute has run, a new 
action must be filed that is essentially identical both as to the parties and to the theories of liability. This isn't your opportunity to expand your case. It's just an opportunity to perform CPR and breathe life back into the case that was existing laying around, I guess, for five years. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's very similar to a dismissal without prejudice where you can renew it within six months. Um, it's it's very similar to that so that you can relate back to the statute of limitations. And the cases say that it has to substantially be the same, both as to the cause of action and to the essential parties. A defendant's liability cannot be enlarged beyond that was indicated in the pleadings in the first case. So, Tane, what about where the prior complaint alleged facts that sound like battery but never had a cause of action for battery contained? Can you just clean that up now on our nope. renewal and, and say, now we're asking for battery damages? No, this, this is not an opportunity for you, like, like you said, for you to go back and clean things up or to add things or even, you know, to, to change things. Um, it, it, the cases say the renewal action cannot charge a new action, new cause of action for battery. And uh, that additional claim does not relate back for purposes of statute of limitations and summary judgment on the renewed action would be appropriate if you changed it in that way. So, Tane, what's our takeaway from these five-year rule cases? There are a couple of takeaways that I really think some are for lawyers, some are for judges, some are for both. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you have, you know, really complex cases, and maybe maybe one of them lasts more than 10 years and you don't get it tried or don't get it decided. But first, if the case is being actively pursued, get an order signed. Um, you know, be aware of those cases that are getting a little old. Uh, even if it's not a dispositive order or a quote unquote important order, get a written order signed by the judge and entered on the docket of the clerk uh, just so that it starts the clock ticking again for you. For judges, sign orders presented by lawyers. Assume there is a reason why they are asking you to sign a continuance order or an order for mediation. They know they do not need to have these orders signed. There might be some reason they are sending it to you. Maybe they have client problems. Maybe they're trying to avoid a five-year rule. Assume yeah, they are requesting that order to be signed for a reason, maybe, maybe even a reason that in all of your omnipotence, Judge, you might not be aware of. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as much as we like to clear a case off of our docket, if a lawyer realizes they have a case and it is gone stale and they're they want to get back on that horse and ride it you know maybe they found that client and mr that client found mr green the important witness in the case and and they got it going again i mean that's not really for us uh to 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 say to to hold out for another two weeks until the five years runs uh you know before it gets dismissed by operation of law because we haven't signed an order um, in my experience, as you said, uh, yeah, I mean, the judges don't have any issues if the lawyers are working on the case and letting the judge, keeping the judge informed as to what's going on. It's, it's those cases that just disappear, you know, that nobody did anything on, uh, for whatever reason. So basically that's all for this episode, dealing with the five-year rule in civil cases. Shout out again to Miss Betty Banks for the idea of dying to hear why, how it impacted her, but that might not be something in our, in our things that we learn. Yeah, go Betty. Uh, if you'd like to hear your idea discussed by two nitwits, uh, reach out to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We love to hear from our loyal listeners as to what they'd like to hear. Both about. of them. Yeah, both, all three of them, really. My mom listens sometimes. 
This outline is full of citations to authority, and it can be found on our website, goodjudgepod.com. Now, Tane, before you start this next section, yes. I would love to get a couple of emails of people who are still listening here, and they understand that we are doing something fun at the end to keep everybody entertained just a wee bit. Yeah. Just tell me you've heard this section when this episode comes out in July. It's like how I now wait through all the ridiculous credits of every key grip and gaffer in the Marvel movies just so I can see that 30-second clip at the end that makes me laugh of everybody eating shawarma uh, in the city that's been <laughs> devastated. I mean, I just love those things. I don't know why. But, um, yeah, so we're adding those things on. Now, I know when we're recording this, uh, Madonna has actually been in the hospital. And so as a big sort of tribute to her because she's been ill this week, uh, we, we just thought we'd do a fun fact about Madonna. And hopefully by the time we air this, she's out and making some of that great music that she's been known for not lately. Um, so anyway, uh, you all know the artist Madonna. She had a bunch of top 10 hits. Specifically, she has had 71 top 40 singles and 63 of those went top 10. So today's trivia question is, Wade, what was Madonna's first Top 10 hit. I'm just waiting for the listeners to shout out answers, so give us a second. Oh, wow. So a bunch of you, I heard a whole bunch of you say, like a virgin. Wrong. Crazy for you, material girl? Nope. Madonna's first top 10 hit was Holiday. Aren't you glad you listened to this podcast just so you could hear me sing that one word? Holiday. No. All right. Thanks, folks. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try to give you actionable information in a format that does not make you want to jump in the creek. Two thoughts on that. One, some topics allow us to be a, have a little more room to have fun. But number two, if we failed you, we'll do our best to do it better next time. We know that you have lots of choices, and we're honored that you chose to spend this time with us. We're kind of amazed, to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Hinnerberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness, but hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Mr. Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises since we started this thing, but we didn't, so... Wade and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Tane and I are also very grateful to the State Justice Institute who have been instrumental in our success in that they have provided grants to help us get this product to you. You know these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, SJI, or the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact somebody else for any complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. But seriously, send the bad comments to Wade. Visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all of our episode outlines and more details about our podcast. Some of you send emails asking for copies of these outlines. 
These outlines are available 24-7, 365 at the website goodjudgepod.com. You can upload them, download them, or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening.